when I, um, the first time I, I met Mary Beth, actually, I was speaking at a conference in Atlanta a couple years ago. And I can remember right before I went on stage, they were like reading my bio. And I was begging God to come into that room. I was just like in the front row, like, Jesus, come. Would you just come and be with us? Would you just come and be with us? And I was in the middle of that prayer when I promise you, I felt like I heard the Lord say, um, I've actually been in Atlanta already for a really long time. Like, I don't, I, you don't need to ask me to come. I'm already here. Instead of me showing up, Beth, why don't you show up? And there was something that shifted in my prayers in that moment. And now every time before I get on a stage, I tell the Lord, I'll come and show up. I'll bring my hands, my mouth, my ideas, my stories, my Bible, my, my, me. I'll, I'll, I will come and show up so that whatever it is that you have for me, I'm, I'm ready to receive it. And that's really my challenge for you today, especially this next session. Would you just come and show up? Would you come and listen to the Lord? I, I'm not going to be the loudest voice in the room. Like, I'm not saying like, would you just come and listen to me? I, don't listen to me. Just tell the Lord. I will show up for this next hour. I will give you my undivided attention. The things that you've been talking to me about prior to this Saturday, he's going to bring up to you again. Like I, I, one of my favorite things is afterwards when someone's like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you talked about whatever. And I'm thinking, I actually didn't talk about that. Like you were tuned into the right channel. Like the Lord used your undivided attention to give you his tailor-made message. So I'm just asking you this morning, would you just show up and open your hearts and open your minds and open your spirit and put away your cell phone and tell the Lord, you, you've got me. What do you want to talk to me about? Is it going to be about something in my past? Is it going to be about something about my future? Is it going to be about, like, what, what's it going to be about? I have no idea. I think it's going to be 200 different versions of it. But let's, let's show up this morning and have, him, and have him begin that ministry to us. Well, yesterday I started with the Hebrew word haneni. Today I want to start with another one. This word is hagah, H-A-G-A-H. It comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. I bet a bunch of you have this verse memorized if you ever spent time in a child's Sunday school classroom. This is where I learned this verse. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so you can be careful to do everything written in it, and then you'll find yourself prosperous and successful. I don't know um, what you think about the word meditate. To me, meditate in English is kind of soft, like think quietly about Jesus things in the morning. I don't know, like meditate doesn't have a lot of oomph to it in English. The word that we translate in English as meditate comes from this Hebrew word hagah, and hagah is an onomatopoeia, a Hebrew onomatopoeia. You guys remember onomatopoeias from high school English class? They're words that sound like what they mean. So in English, we have the onomatopoeias of pop and hiss, and boom, right? Those words all sound like what they mean. Hagah literally means the sound a lion makes when he's consuming his prey. So I'm going to count to three, and I want you to say Hagah, and I want you to make it sound like someone's eating something, okay? Here we go. One, two, three. So the verse really says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but consume it like a lion would its prey, so that you can be careful to do everything written in it, and then you'll find yourself prosperous and successful. This is the plumb line. This will be the star of our time this morning. We'll be talking about the Word of God and how it literally, it divides bone and marrow. It literally writes my thinking. It sets me on the right path. In fact, I just learned this the other day, so it's not in my notes. I'll practice it out on you. But you know that verse? I don't remember what it is. I'm sorry, Psalm, I think 118, about 
Thy word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. You know that verse? I was taking a look at some early examples of, of, uh, of first, like early century lanterns. The kind that David would have had when he wrote, your word is a light into my path and a, a lamp into my feet. And they look like, they're like little clay and you put a little bit of olive oil and then they have these little tiny wicks. They give off the light of a birthday candle. And I think to myself, sometimes I want the Lord to light up like the next 20 feet in front of me. Like give me like one of those big flashlights with a long beam. But the Lord's saying, this, this will give you, it'll be a light into your f- path and a lamp into your feet or just mess that up. But it, he'll give you enough light so you know where to take the very next step. And then you take the word with you and it'll light up where you take the very next step. And then you take it with you and then it'll light up the very next step. We sometimes get in trouble. We're like, could you just tell us what the end of the road looks like? He's looking for us to be in positions of dependence. Um, this morning, I'm, I'm, I want just you to hear, hear this principle and then we'll illustrate it in all kinds of ways. There are two storylines going on and all the time. One of these storylines is the gospel storyline. It's full of words like restoration and reconciliation and redemption and rescue and repair and receive and renew and revive. And I just ran out of room on my slide. This, that side, that's the gospel storyline. He is always about doing it. He will partner with us in any moment, any time, any conversation, any relationship to extend his restoration, redemption, reconciliation, rescue, repair, power through us that we might be part, we might represent him as a priest. In fact, the Bible calls us a kingdom of priests, right? It's hard enough to think about ourselves as saints, let alone a priest, but a priest represents God. The whole reason that we have priests is so that we understand more about God. When someone spends time with you, they should know more about the God that you represent. Like, wow, She's generous, therefore the God she represents must be generous. She's patient, therefore the God she represents is patient. When we're standing in God's storyline of restoration, redemption, rescue, repair, we represent that God. But there's this opposing storyline, this enemy storyline that we heard quite a bit about last night in that panel, and his storyline is the exact opposite. Instead of restoration, he's about destruction. Instead of reconciliation, he's about conflict. Instead of redemption, he's about condemnation. And so he's over here actively trying to, in every day, every relationship, every moment, every, every, everything, get you to partner with him to destroy things and have conflict with others and condemn others and feel things like loss and brokenness and like there's not enough and like it's all going down. It's dead. That's his storyline. And the problem is, as Christ followers, we can be thinking like, "Mm, it's like Tuesday and I'm going to Target. Like, I'm not over here in the restoration, reconciliation, redemption, rescue, repair. I'm not over here in this storyline today, but I'm not, I mean, I'm definitely not going to partner with the enemy. I'm not going to try to have conflict and destruction and condemnation. I'm just going to hang out here in the middle today. Like, I'm just going to be a neutral. But there is literally no neutral. There is no middle ground. We pick every single day whether we're going to reach up and partner with God in the things that he wants to advance in this world or we're going to hold the hand of the enemy and help advance a kingdom of darkness. We, we get no middle line. And there's this long passage. I think it's going to be worth us reading um, in the book of uh, Galatians chapter 5. But the way that I want you to stay paying attention to this long passage is if you hear a word or a phrase in this passage that just sparks something in you, just write it down. It'll help you follow along. Let's go ahead and start this passage in Galatians. It says, it's absolutely clear, Paul says, that God has called you to a free life. 
So we got to use our freedom to serve one another in love. This is how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's a true act of freedom. So my counsel is this. I want you to live freely and animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. Selfishness is this other, this opposing storyline, self. For there's a root of sinful self-interest in us that is always at odds with the free spirit, with the God storyline, just as the free spirit is incompatible over here with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical. You cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Like we don't get to just, just wherever we feel like that day, wake up. It's obvious what kind of life develops on trying to get your own way all the time. So this is Paul's explanation of this enemy storyline. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, and all-consuming yet never-satisfied wants, brutal temper, an impotence to love and be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. These are ugly parodies of community. This is the, world our, this is the way our world is living. Competition, never-satisfied wants, everyone is a rival, paranoid loneliness. This is the world. We don't, we don't, we don't have to live there any longer. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings good gifts into our lives, things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that basic holiness permeates things and people. This is the the gifts of the Spirit passage. Since this is the kind of life we've chosen over here, the God storyline, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure we don't just hold it as an idea in our heads, or a feeling, a sentiment in our hearts, like, oh, that's a good idea. That's, that's, that, I, I think that's a good idea. But instead, we've got to work out its implications in every single detail of our lives. This means we won't compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another one worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our life because each one of us is an original. I love how Paul makes it very clear. You, you, can't, you can't just float back and forth between those kingdoms. You've got to pick one or the other. N.T. Wright has this teaching I've liked for a really long time. In fact, it's how I often describe this kind of thinking to kids. He says, in the beginning of time, there's like picture like, you know, Genesis 1-1, God's perfect presence rested on the earth. We call his perfect presence in Hebrew shalom. His perfect peace rested on the earth, right? And it was like awesome for a hot second until Adam and Eve ate the apple, and then that was separated from itself. And and then God's perfect presence had to leave the earth, and the absence of shalom is chaos, and so the world was left in chaos when sin entered the world. Chaos is that description of cutthroat loneliness and and, and paranoia and everyone's arrival and competition and pain and an impotence we love and trinket gods and magic show religion and like Man, the earth was left in chaos. Chaos is every single word you've ever heard that starts with self. Self-interest, self-hatred, self, 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 every self you can think of. That's the storyline. 
And five times in the Old Testament, God reached down to his people through covenants. Think David and Moses and Abraham and, and somebody else. <laughs> and Noah, I could keep going. Five times he reached down into the chaos to bring his people into relationship with himself. And then finally, in Acts chapter 2, when God brought the Holy Spirit into his church, then we have the, the next, he, he rested his perfect shalom down into earth. 1 Corinthians, easy to remember, 1 Corinthians 3.16, like John 3.16, says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but you in the Greek is plural. So it really says, don't you know that you, all y'all, how do we say it down here? Don't we know that all y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That together he has come to rest his perfect presence in us. And, and that's what we call in the Bible the kingdom of heaven on earth. So if you are a Christ follower, that's where your citizenship lies. You live in the kingdom of heaven on earth. You don't live in shalom yet. I was there with my dad the moment he, he took his last breath. And as soon as he was gone, my mom looked at my brothers and I and said, absent with the body means present with the Lord. And I said, my gosh, dad just moved. He just moved. He has a different address. I don't live in that address yet. We are not in shalom. But he has, God has not left me down here in chaos. I don't have to live like chaos. I don't have to live like that. I don't have to be in an ugly parody of community. Ugly parody of community. I don't have to have a marriage like that, a household like that, friendships like that. I don't have to live that way. I get to live in the kingdom of heaven on earth. I get to be among this place, but live with exuberance about life and affection for others and serenity. I get to live with the good gifts he gives me. And here's what can happen. We can find ourselves in the kingdom of heaven on earth and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful to be here. I am so glad that God has called me out of chaos. I'm so glad this is where I live. I'm going to make sure now that everybody looks like me, talks like me, votes like me, dresses like me, worships like me, spends like me, plays like me, schools like me. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to be up here in the kingdom of heaven on earth. But here's the truth. Your whole Bible can pretty much be summed up into two words. 66 books. The first word is Come. God is an invitational God, and he has invited you into relationship with him. Come, come, come into the kingdom of heaven and earth. Come into relationship with me. Come, come. But the second word is go. He has left us with a great commission in Matthew, and he wants us to go into the chaos in his name. And I'm telling you, every time I have dove into the chaos in the name of Jesus, it has cost me something. It's cost me time, money, sleepless nights, my reputation, gray hair, you name it. When we go into the chaos and enter into someone else's storyline, it costs us something. But the Bible tells us that that's okay, that we're supposed to identify with the sufferings of Christ. In fact, I think Christians should have a close proximity to pain because we know what to do with it. We're not afraid of it. We should get as close as possible. I don't have a picture of it, I don't think, with me today, but I went to the... Um, town of Sardis in modern-day Turkey. That would be biblical Asia Minor. And in, in that town, there was, a, there was a ruin for a goddess. She was a fertility god. We're going to give her zero stage time, but just imagine ancient times, fertility god, how they worshipped her. And, and uh, I had this idea. I, I grew up in the church. I kind of always thought Jesus lived and died and you know, rose again and had his 
moment to give us everything, all the instructions, and ascended into heaven. And then the disciples went all the ways that they went around the world, and they told people who didn't have Jesus about Jesus, and people who didn't know God now got to know God. Like, that's what I always thought. Then I went on this travel, and we followed the, the pattern of the early church, and I was like, oh, wow. When the disciples landed in these towns, and they're like, hey, our God raised from the dead. They were like, our God does that every spring. Our God fed 5,000. Well, our God, she, she feeds the whole valley every year in the spring rains. And like everywhere they went with the good news of Jesus Christ, people already had a version of what they thought was true, their own version of news. They had their own gods, their own faiths, their own patterns, their own religions, their own churches, their own path. And so when the disciples came there with the Jesus of Nazareth story, he prepared them for it by telling them, hey, you know what? You know how they're going to know you're different? By the way that you love them. That's how they're going to know this is, the, this is the truth. This is the good news. By the way that you love them. Well, I went, when we were in Sardis, um, I'll, I'll, I will look for it and send it and show it maybe up in the third session. But there's this picture of the ruins of her temple. And she had a festival every spring and 14 days. And on the last day, people would wear these white robes and they would march around her temple and they would flog themselves or bloody their robes. And the bloodier your robes, the holier you were to her. In fact, that's why in Revelations, there's a letter to the church of Sardis and says, some of you have yet to soil your clothes. And then they would have relations with, you know, strangers and children and animals and all kinds of craziness and an effort to worship her. And then if you wanted to be one of her priests on the last day of that temple when you were marching around, the last thing you do would castrate yourself and offer yourself to this goddess. And it was of incredible honor to the, to the family if you did that. Well, then arrives the first century church. And the picture I took is of the ruins of the, the earliest church that we know. It is so close to the temple, they look like they're condominiums. And I literally love that the first century believers showed up in that town and saw all that craziness that was going on and didn't think to themselves, I'm setting up six kilometers in the other direction. I don't want to see that. I don't want to know about that. I don't want to look at that. I don't, want to, I don't want any of that near me. Those people set up right next to them. We don't really know what they did there. I mean, I'm hoping they passed out Band-Aids and water bottles, right? I mean, I'm hoping that they got so close to where, because if it hurt them to flog themselves, I mean, if it hurts us to flog ourselves, it hurt them to flog themselves. If it hurts us to have meaningless sexual relations with people, then it, it would have hurt them. Those people would have been hurting. And the church came as close as they possibly could and eventually toppled that faith. Like we as believers, we need to go into the chaos and stand strong with the things that God gives us as people who identify with him. Well, God decided to bring the chaos right into my house. Those two little girls that Todd and I had tried to adopt that first year that we were um, living in Mexico and that that adoption failed, we found years later in another orphanage. And it was like, oh, I thought the hallelujah course was going off. I told these people, oh my gosh, God brought us here because these are our girls and we're supposed to have them. And it would be several years before they would come into our home um, full time. For years, they still continued to languish in an orphanage. But when they were 10 and 12, under something we would recognize as foster care, they came into our full-time care. And by that time, the 12-year-old who, when she was three, I used to call spirited, at 12 was downright rebellious. And she didn't like anything and anyone and definitely not me. And there was this like initial euphoria that we were completing 
or I thought I was completing, I was just getting started with an assignment that we felt God had called us to years before, but it was quickly snuffed out all that euphoria because she was a lot of work. I don't know if any of you have ever taken care of a child. Um, That is a lot of work, but she was actually more work than the other eight of my children at that time combined. She brought attention to every dinner table um, nothing was good enough for her. It was, it was really hard. And there were many times in those years where I was just like, oh my gosh, Lord, relieve me of this assignment. Like, I'm just being honest with you. It wasn't, it wasn't fun anymore to be in the chaos. And I was regularly having to take deep breaths in the kingdom of heaven on earth so I could go back out there and love her when I wasn't getting much in return. Finally, when she was 15, things kind of came to a head. And I invited a man out of Texas, Dr. Kyle Miller, to come to my house. And I said to him, listen to any conversation, open any closet, challenge me in any way you would like to. I cannot do this like maybe even one more day. So he observed our family for three days. On the third day, right before he was going to leave, her name was Carolina. She walked out of her bedroom into the kitchen and she had a rocking 15-year-old body, and she had this tiny little mini skirt. I was like, oh, sweetie, you cannot go to school like that. You need to change your clothes. So facial expression, facial expression, facial expression. Then she goes into her room, changes out of her tiny mini skirt, put on these tiny little tank top. I was like, not funny. You cannot go to school like that. She goes back into our room. This goes on for a few minutes. Finally, she comes out with something that I bought her. I'm like, you look adorable. Have a great day at school. And she walked out of the house and around the corner, and she and I both knew that what she really wanted to wear was underneath that. And as soon as she was out of my sight, she ripped that off and wore what she really wanted to school. And I looked at Kyle, and I'm like, she won. And she knows she won, and she knows that I know she won, and like, I can't do it anymore. And he sat down, and he drew me something on a napkin that changed the way I lived. So here's to saving you thousands of dollars in counseling. He drew a picture of a tree. And of this, he said, he drew a picture of a tree. He said, Beth, I want you to imagine the top of her tree are her attitudes and her actions. I've watched you for three straight days spend 95% of your time at the top of her tree. You are talking to her about curfew and homework, and you're talking to her about, I mean, boys and the telephone and her sister and her dishes. Like everything you're talking to her about is at the top of the tree. That little girl walked out of here in a miniskirt because her self-image is broken. The reason she, she, she thinks that she by herself is not good enough. She thinks Carolina plus a short skirt is what gives her value. That's why she walked out of here in a miniskirt. Her self-image is, it's not right. And, and the reason her self-image is not strong, is not healthy, is not true. It's because she's got all these lies in the garden of her heart. We need to replace those lies with truth. I've, I've heard you for three days not spend almost any time in the garden of her heart. And he said, if, if you know anything about horticulture, when you cut off the top of a tree, it grows back twice as strong. I was like, mm, can I get a witness? Yes, this is what's happening in my house. And he said, I have a prescription for you. I want you to spend the next 90 days only talking to her about what's going on in the garden of her heart. I don't want you to talk to her one bit about her attitude and action unless she's going to hurt herself or somebody else. And I was like, nothing, nothing about boys and curfew and internet and dishes and homework and like nothing. And he's like, how's that been going for you so far? Not so well. I'm telling you as honestly as I can, it was a lot harder than I thought. 
At this point, I'm like a professional Christian, right? Like I'm like a missionary. I have been in Sunday school since I was an infant. Like who would have guessed it would be so hard to speak truth to somebody? It was. She came home um, after school, not long after that, to tell us how lame our spring break plans were. I wanted to say, you know why my spring break plans are lame? Because you are a ward of the state, and I can't take you across state lines. If I didn't have you, I'd be at the beach somewhere. That would have not been effective. (laughs) So instead, I just said, you know what? We're going to have a great spring break. It's going to be full of a hope and a future. I knew I was talking about Jeremiah 29, 11. I didn't tell her that, but I just started to say things that were true. She came home with a homework assignment with like, you know, 75 poster boards and 95 pages of homework and whatever, and it was all due the next day. And at the tip of my tongue, I wanted to be like, and so how long have you known about this assignment? But that would have been ineffective at that point. So I just said, you know what? He's before all things, and in him all things are hold together. I knew I was talking about Colossians chapter 1. She didn't have to know about that, but I knew I started, I was putting truth, inserting truth into our conversation. And the The honest thing is, I had to go to the Bible in the morning and look for, Lord, what do you have for me to talk to Carolina about today? And the the Bible talks about in Proverbs that the word of God is sweet to the taste, like honey. And the truth is, the more I put his word into my mouth, the closer she got to me, because it tastes good to taste something sweet. And she would walk into my house, and instead of kind of giving me like the, you know, teenage girl stance. She would come in the house and she just kind of saddle up to me. And it wasn't like we were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. But she, she wasn't resistance to my presence, which was like step one. And over the course of that 90 days, I began to watch something transform in her. And I'm not telling you it's a formula. This is not maybe the way it will always work. But at the end of those 90 days, she bowed and prayed to receive the Lord as her Lord and Savior. And I can remember looking over at Todd afterwards like, oh, baby, the, the rapture is imminent because it is finished, you know? Like, <laughs> Just a few months after that, we had a team visiting us from a church in my hometown, and I didn't know any of them that had come. And after church on a Sunday, this guy comes up to me afterwards, and he's like, hey, uh, my name's Mark Shaw, and do you have time, Beth, f- for a story? And I looked around at my kids to see how long we were till like lunch meltdown, everyone seemed okay. So I was like, yeah, I have time for a story. And he's like, do you know my mom? Her name is Barbara Shaw. And I was thinking to myself, I just met you. Like, how would I know your mother? But I didn't say that. I just was like, "Um, uh, no, I don't think I know her. And he goes, oh, she's known in our city as an intercessor prayer warrior. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know what? I actually think I've heard of her. I think people have told me that they've passed on a request to Barbara Shaw. And he's like, she passed away this spring. And I was like, I'm so sorry for your loss. He's like, well, I don't know if you remember, but there was this girl that, do you remember when you guys had an art auction in Ohio? And I did remember. We had this girl from Des Moines, Iowa, who was very gifted in art and canvas oil paintings. She came on a trip, and afterwards, she asked me for a stack of photographs that she went through and then selected some pictures from that, and then she turned them into uh, into paintings. Then she shipped those paintings from Iowa to Ohio, where we auctioned them off. And he said, somebody bought one of her paintings and they gifted it to my mom because um, she had been praying for her um, daughter who had been in a hospital and was sick and they just wanted to give her a thank you. He said, as as my mom was, was dying in the last several months of her life, people would ask her, Barbara, are you ready to go home? 
And she'd say, I'm not ready to go home yet. I'm still working. I'm praying for my children and my grandchildren and my pastor. And she was, she was actively intercessing. And he said, but as she got to the end of her life, she called me over and she said, Mark, I don't care about anything else, but I want to tell you what I know. I would like to ask if you would take this painting that had been hanging over her couch for the last several years. Would you take this painting home with you? And would you continue to pray for the children in the painting? Because there's something in my spirit tells me we're not done yet. And I don't know what it looks like on the other side of eternity. And so I'm just asking, like, would you take this painting home? And he was like, what do you tell your dying mom? You're like, yes, I'll take the painting. He said, but I don't have her gifts. I'm just saying the same thing every day. And I don't even know if it's making any difference or not. So I took a picture of the painting and I'd like to show it to you. And I was hoping that you would be able to tell me a little something about the children that are in that picture so I can have like a more specific prayer list. So Jesus and I began to have a little conversation at this point. Like, Lord, the girl is a good painter, but like facial features and this is a couple years ago, and orphanages are kind of transient. So I'm telling the Lord, if I don't recognize who's in that picture, I'm going to just tell him like a representative story. And somewhere between his prayer life and your heaven, you just fix it and apply it to the right people. Like, <laughs> no way. He's emotional at this point. I'm like, there's no way I'm telling this guy, no, I don't, I don't have anything for you. I don't know who that is. Like, I'm not doing it. But I, the Lord does not ever give you a green light for deception, right? So he's, he's like busy signal. Like, he's not giving it to me. <laughs> And so I called my children over to the, um, look at the picture that he was about to show us with me because they know all the kids of the orphanages. And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, maybe they'll help me recognize it. So I call everybody. I'm like, Mr. Shaw is going to show us this picture. We're going to see if we can tell who's in it. He pulls out this picture of his mom in this painting. As soon as I saw it, I instantly recognized it as my two foster daughters who had been in my life for, for three years. And, uh, it's a picture that we had from a Christmas thing. I don't even know how it got in that stack of photos. I don't know how out of all the pictures, that's one of the ones she chose to do, how it went from Iowa to Ohio and then auctioned to a family that I've never met before who purchased it and gave it to Barbara Shaw, who I never met before, who for three years interceded on my behalf on all the days this assignment wasn't fun anymore. The very first thing I said to him was, if you're looking for a list of specific prayer requests, get your pen and paper out right now. <laughs> And then I said to him, do you understand that your mama co-labored with me in the salvation of this little girl? The Bible talks about how Jesus in the parable was with a hundred sheep and one of the sheep got away. And instead of saying over here and 99 sheep and thinking he did pretty well with 99 out of a hundred, he leaves that 99 in pursuit of the one and then finds it, throws it over his shoulder and, and takes it home. On all the days I had to go looking on God's behalf partnering with him in that storyline of restoration and reconciliation and redemption and rescue and repair. Lord, I'm choosing you. I won't go over there where there's conflict and destruction and condemnation. I'm going to partner with you. This is the only way of life for me. I, was, I didn't have it. And God knew it. And he called on a woman I have never met before to pray for me in that place so that I would have the strength that came from another place a, a, a glory strength, the Bible calls it, to do the assignment that God has for me. A few years after this, when the girls were 17 and 15, thanks to the internet, an extended family member located us. And the girls had been in an orphanage since they were one and three. So 
I, please hear me that Back to Back is a huge proponent of family reunification. We love family reunification. But in this particular situation, these girls were being contacted by extended family who wanted to recruit them into something that was not for their best good. Best good. And they were calling us and threatening that they were going to come take the girls out of our full-time care. So they call, like my strategy really was I just hung up on them when they called. But one Monday they called and I could tell everything had escalated a little bit. They told me that they were going to be there that Friday and bring the authorities with them and that the girls were going to be removed from our house until somebody in a court of law could determine who is it that best had um, authority over them. So I hung up the phone realizing the game had changed a little bit and I picked up the phone and I called this woman. Her name is Martha. Martha is, she's the Miss Libby of my life. She, um, she has walked with God so long and so well over so many years that when I'm around her, I literally like to rub up against her. It is super awkward. She is totally used to it. I just like, I just like, I just want like whatever you've got going on, like spirit over here. Like I want, I want your sense of peace. I want your sense of joy. I want your sense of perspective. I want your wisdom. I want your, I want, I want it. I'm always like hanging out with her. She runs an orphanage in Mexico that the girls, our foster daughters lived in for many years before they were able to come to our care full time. And she is a dear mentor of mine. And so I called her right away and I'm like, hey, they said the authorities are coming and they're going to take the girls away. And so here's what I want you to do. Get every visitor log nobody ever signed. Get every doctor's record, school record, picture you put on your refrigerator that they made for you. Let's put together a huge file of all the ways in which they have thrived under our care now for a decade and a half. And if some authority wants to come to my house, we'll hold court right there. And she's always pretty cool as a cucumber. She's like, okay, I'll be there on Friday. I then spent about 20, 25 hours that week in government offices amassing kind of my own case with all the proof I thought we would need to make people go away. Finally, Friday comes, and Martha pulls into my house, still driving herself, and she had a big um, bag in her back seat. And I thought that was a really good sign because I had a really big bag inside. And she asked me if I would help her carry it in, and it was really heavy, and I was like, yes. And I settled her into our dining room where our girls were kind of nervously sitting, waiting for what was about to happen. And about 30 minutes later, this car pulls into our campus. And the best way I can describe it is it was like an angry mob of bees. They pull in, and as soon as they get out of the car, they start swarming and swearing and shouting and cursing, and, and I couldn't get them to stop. I was like, hi, my name's Beth. Welcome to Back to Back. Can I, can I get you some iced tea? Like, totally ineffective. Finally, after a few minutes, I was just like, what is wrong? I just start walking into my house, and they start to follow me. And it Inside, our houses are made out of cement there, so the acoustics are crazy. And I walk them into the house, and they see the girls for the first time, and the cement walls, and everything ratchets it up a bunch. And people are screaming and shouting, and it <clears throat> sounded louder than normal. And so I stood on my dining room chair, and I yelled at the top of my lungs, I think Martha has something she'd like to say. And then I look at Martha, and I think, we were going to wind up to the visitor log, but let's start with it. Like, I just said that in my, like, little mental telepathy to her, like, Let's go for the smoking gun. Like, get this thing over with as fast as possible. So Martha reaches down into her bag, and she comes up uh, with her Bible. These people do not share our faith. I'm thinking, you got confused. We are not a Bible study. She opens up her Bible to Psalm chapter 1 and just quietly begins to read about a tree planted in stream of water and in season how it bears fruit. And I don't care what your faith is. Some beautiful 80-year-old lady begins to read 
the Bible to you, you just get quiet, right? In case there's a lightning bolt that might come. Everybody was just quiet. She finishes Psalm 1, and my memory of that was that I was thinking to myself, I literally would have never thought of reading a psalm to get the attention of this room. But now that you have it, get the visitor log. Did not reach back into her bag. Instead, she went right into Psalm 2, which is not nearly as quotable about nations conspiring and plotting in vain. Then she goes into Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, Nine. At this point, the girls and I are kind of slumped back in our chairs. I like political things, and I was thinking, oh my heavens, we're like in a spiritual filibuster, right? Like these people are going to have to go to the bathroom eventually. They're going to get hungry. There's a ton of Psalms in this book. Like, <laughs> she gets into Psalm 10, and I could tell she was landing somewhere by the way her voice changed. She gets to the end of Psalm 10 and she reads verse 17. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of this earth may terrify us no more. Then she closed her Bible and she said, these little girls belong, they are daughters of the King Most High. They're not ours any more than they are yours. You ask, their, ask them where their father has told them to be. And the, the oldest one, even in Christ, still a little feisty, she's like, a key, which means right here. And the other one's like, a key. And I would misrepresent the story to you if I said they like, you know, stood up and shook my hand and thanked me for our years of service. Like, it didn't exactly happen that way. But they did push away from the table and everything started again, the swearing and shouting and swarming and all that business. It all started all over again but they were heading towards my, my door. So I just went around them and I, I opened it. And then they're like saying all these things I actually never wanted those little girls to ever hear, but they're saying them as they were getting in their car. So I open up the gate on the campus and they just go flying out of it. I'm shutting that gate thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I spent 25 hours in government offices and this lady reads 10 Psalms and these people are gone. So I go busting into the house because I want to rub up against her. I, I was just like, you did it. 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 I couldn't, I, like, I couldn't stand it. I was just a euphoric. But she was not done yet. Um, I got up into the house and I was just like, ah! and she put her Bible, which is like this big, right into my face. And she said, don't you ever forget this is the only sword we ever take into battle. I was like, oh, you're right. And two of the best lessons I learned about fighting that chaos, about distancing myself from the enemy storyline and embracing God's call for my life, I learned from Barbara Shaw and Martha Rojas that it's the intercession of the saint on behalf of the sheep that's lost. And it's the wielding of the word of God that the enemy literally cannot stand. In Exodus, there's a passage where Moses, he's been doing a bunch of plagues that are impressing the Egyptians as much as they hate it. And so Pharaoh calls all his like sorcerers together. And he's like, could you all come up with a, a, a plague as cool as their gods, so that our people know that we are as powerful as theirs. And those in chapter eight, those guys come together and tell Pharaoh, all of our power combined does not compare to what their God has in his finger, in the finger of God. We have access to unbelievable power to push back the chaos, 
to bring light into darkness, to advance the kingdom. Oh, let's use it, people. In 2016, I was um, diagnosed with the BRCA2 gene, the breast cancer gene, and made the decision to prophylactically go under, um, under a uh, double mastectomy and a complete hysterectomy. And in that season of those surgeries, I was not getting the regular dosage of my Bible that I had been getting previously because I was in so much pain. I could not focus. I could not read. And this girl without her Bible is it's just not very pretty. In fact, one of the things I learned in that season is that pain actually makes you mean. And <laughs> a little bit after the surgeries, I was at my son's track meet and there was a grandma who was taking care of like a grandson, maybe five years old, and she was being very unkind to him. And pre-Beth, before my surgeries, I would have watched that scene and been very judgmental of that grandma. Like, you cannot talk to kids that way. And I probably would have tried to sneak the kid like a Hot Wheel or a sucker or something, right? After my surgeries, I was watching that grandmother be unkind to that child, and I was thinking to myself, I wonder where she's hurting. Because pain makes us mean. But it was one night, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I, basically the sun shines in Bethlehem. Like during the day, I think things like rainbows and unicorns and like it's all going to be fine. But sometimes I might want a little show of hands if you feel so vulnerable. Are there, is there anyone else in the room that would join me that sometimes at night I think dark and scary thoughts that I would never think in the day, right? Anybody ever have dark thoughts at the night? Okay, you, you people listen up. So I would sometimes like just catastrophic. And I woke up one night in, in the aftermath of that recovery and I was like, oh my gosh, the house is going to burn down and Todd's going to go to jail and my kids are going to run away or like, you know, just like big things. And I knew I needed the Bible, but I couldn't, I, I, I didn't, I hadn't been in it for a while. So I picked up my phone. I didn't want to wake up my husband. I picked up my phone and I opened up my Bible app. And for the very first time, I noticed there was an audio feature on my Bible app. And I was, the Bible app opened into one of the Gospels, which the Gospels are basically just Jesus's words. And I hit play, and there was a, the person that reads the audio uh, app on my, the audio Bible on my app is a man. So I'm in the dark listening to a man literally say Jesus's words. I was like, oh my gosh, like Jesus is calling me, right? You know, like, and I just started to listen to the Gospels, and it did what the Bible says it'll do. It began to soothe, comfort, ground, heal. And as I was listening to God's word, I just felt like, oh, the darkness was pushed away. The, all, these, all this thinking over here about death and condemnation and failure and conflict and destruction, it has no room. It, can, it, it literally can't sit in the same space with God's word, living word. So it went away, everything started to feel better again, and I fell asleep, and I'm like, oh wow, I'm gonna do that more often. So I began to use the audio Bible as a regular tool all throughout that spring and into the summer. I would just listen to it maybe when I woke up for a few minutes or when I went to bed, or when I was getting ready, or when I was in the car. I would, just, I would just hit play and let the Word of God come to me. Later that fall, I was totally now bounced back and healthy, and one Saturday, my husband and I were having a fight. I'm just going to be honest. We were having a fight. We both cannot even remember what it was about. Isn't that how fights go? But we were having a fight that felt very important at the time. And uh, I wish the whole house had frozen while we were fighting. So like, okay, 10 children, freeze. Like your dad and I are going to work this out. But that's not how it works. Like they keep living life. And so we moved into our bedroom to have some privacy. 
We were in there for a little while, and then my son knocked on the door to see if he could get a ride to a basketball game. And my husband looked at me, and he goes, I'll be right back. I'm like, I'll be right here. Like, I'm gearing up for round two. And he went storming out of the house. And as soon as I was alone, I felt conviction. I didn't like what I was thinking. I didn't like what I was saying. The Lord had begun to convict me, but I had tons of adrenaline going on inside of me. The very last thing I wanted to do was open up my Bible to the book of Exodus. Like, I, I didn't have the strength to go to my Bible, but I knew my Bible needed to come to me because I needed right thinking. I needed correction. But, and I'd been using this tool all spring and all summer, so I knew the Bible could come to me in moments when I wasn't strong enough to go to it. So I just laid on my bed, and I stuck my phone next to me, and I hit play on my Bible app. And I was just listening to the word, the bomb of Gilead, come over, you know, fix me. And Todd comes barreling into the, into the room 15 minutes later. Poor guy, you can't start yelling at your, life, your wife when she's laying on the bed listening to her Bible, right? You know, so he comes in the room like, hmm. And... Uh, he comes and sits next to me on the bed. And as after he had settled down there, I promise the very next verse we heard was out of the book of Mark. And it says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And all of a sudden, he just reached over and grabbed my hand. And it wasn't that. It wasn't that like we couldn't have just like picked up where we left off or didn't. Or I was like, oh my gosh, I totally see how you're thinking. Perfect. I'm, I'm there. Like it wasn't. It's just that suddenly something was more important than being right, and that was unity in Christ. That was this, this gift that God gave us. The Word of God literally brings unity to believers. Is there any unity more beautiful than that between spouses? Like, the audio Bible has been a tremendous tool for us in our marriage in the last three years. Tremendous tool. That same time frame, we were studying, our organization does a lot of trauma training, and we were doing some trauma training with the great Dr. David Schooler. I know he's been here before and trained some of you all. He's awesome. After you spend time with him, we have a verb for it. We call it, you got schoolered. And uh, he was talking to us about how anger, all forms of anger, think the passive kind and the aggressive kind, is a secondary emotion. And it sits on top of the primary emotion of fear. So every time we're angry, we're actually really afraid. He said to me, he, well, to all of us, it just felt like it was just to me. He said, um, have any of you ever lost a child in a grocery store? And I was like, yes. And he said, tell us a little bit about it. And I had lost my son Josh in this Mexican grocery store, and he didn't stay at the cart, and I went bonkers when I couldn't find him. I was positive he was currently being human trafficked in those 10 seconds. You know, I was like... Crazy, crazy, crazy. When I finally found him in the banana section, I did not go, hey, buddy, would you like to bring some of those home with us? Like, that would be a good treat, wouldn't it? I mean, when I found him, I was like, what are you doing? I told you to do like, I, was, I was beside myself with anger. But the truth is, I was really just afraid. I was really just afraid. So he began to talk to us about how anger is a secondary emotion. Fear is a primary emotion. And what the Bible tells us we can do with our fears. How God wants to relieve us of our fears. How God wants to answer. The antidote to fear is truth. Everything that we're afraid of has a biblical truth that is designed to relieve us of that fear. To give us confidence in Christ. But we have to know the truth in order to experience that kind of freedom. Well, uh, about a week after we had sat in that training with Dr. Schooler, my husband and I were building a house. 
And uh, I don't know if you've ever been through that process, but we were building a house and uh, we were making a decision one night whether or not our guest room would have its own private bath. And Todd thought we should have a private bath in there. We have a lot of missionaries that stay with us for extended periods of time. And he was like, they're going to appreciate that privacy. And I was thinking, we don't, they don't need a bath in there. We can like go upstairs to the bathroom, downstairs. But they're just going to be excited about being in here. It's like, they don't need a bath. And I don't, I don't know if this is how it happens for you all, but we started talking about bathrooms and a hot second later, I was talking about his mother, right? You know? <laughs> and I was getting all worked up and uh, he was remembering our training and he said, Beth, you sound really angry, but I'd like to really know what is it that you're afraid of? And I was like, mm. and then I finally said, you know what? I'm afraid we can't afford it. And he's like, afford it? I wouldn't have even brought it up if I didn't think we could afford it. And he got out his little spreadsheets and showed me how we could afford it. I was like, okay, well, then I'd like a double sink and brush nickel in there, please. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The way the enemy wants to use anger to divide child and parent, husband and wife, neighbor to neighbor. Like, we're going to talk a little bit more about it in the third session, but the enemy is actively trying to divide and destroy and disconnect that which God knows. He had another way of being. He had another plan for us, and he encourages for it. We have to, we have to get in that moment where we're having a, a hot mess with our child. We have to get in that moment where we're in the fight with our spouse or our parent or whomever, it is, our sister or whatever, and say, Lord, I'm going to make room for you in this place. it's crashing down on me and I'm feeling afraid and panicked and like I'm losing control and my rights and my voice and whatever else that is your trigger button. And then my only reaction is to come out with aggression or explosion or passive aggressiveness. I'm going to withhold from people relationship or grace or like I'm, and and the Lord's like, oh, make room for me. Exodus 25, make room for me. If you make a space for me, I'll come and fill it. And in that space, you'll have everything that you need. Half of it is making room for him. In January of this year, I speak 10 times a year at my church, and my pastors assigned to me the subject I'm supposed to teach on. So they they called me to tell me that um, I was going to speak in January and that the topic, they were in a series about the things that Jesus invites us into. And he said, "Um, your your week is God invites us to rest. And I said, did my mother call you? Like... (laughs) what about my life makes you think that I have anything to say about that subject? Like, I'm not going to be any good at that. And they're like, well, that's the week at fall. So that's, that's what you're going to do. And so I was like, oh, Jesus, I'm sure you have a hand in all this. And so the first thing I did was look up the word rest in Hebrew. It's this verb, hakaso. I'm sorry, I don't have on a screen behind us. You can look it up very easily. It's all over the Old Testament, hakaso. It means to rest, to be still, or to be quiet. You can find it all over the place. But I found it in this passage that I've taught many times, and I never knew it was in there. And it was literally like my mind went, Genesis chapter 4. There's this passage where God is talking to Cain. Remember Cain and Abel, the brothers? Cain's the bad one. He's going to kill Abel. That's why we have that expression, raising Cain. Okay? God is talking to Cain, and he says, sin is crouching at your door. You have two choices. You can either master it, or it'll master you. 
And I've taught that many times when I'm talking to other audiences about um, orphan care and the things we do at Back to Back because I talk about generational sin. And the sins that are crouching at my door are different than the sins that are crouching at your door because of our families of origin and because of our life experiences. But I still have that same option that God is asking that same question to me that he's asking to Cain, Beth, sin is crouching at your door. I know what my sins are called. Sin is crouching at my door. I have two choices. I can master those sins or they're going to master me. And if they master me, they'll destroy my life. And so anyway, I like to have this whole talk. I give about that. It's very exciting. The line right before it says this. In English, it says, if you do what is well, your face will be lifted up. If you do not do what is well, then sin is crouching at your door. You have two choices, master it or master you. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. But that verse that we describe as well is actually this hakaso verb. So it's better translated, if you rest, if you are still, if you are quiet, your face will be lifted up. That's true. When I'm still, when I'm quiet, when I'm resting, I do look up to Jesus. And it is well with my soul. If you are not still, if you are not quiet, and if you do not rest, then sin is crouching at your door. And you have two choices. You can master it or master you. And I, I had told my pastors, I don't like the idea of rest because rest feels to me like a timeout. And I don't like to be timed out. And I was reading this passage like, oh my gosh, God gave me rest as a weapon. It's a weapon to gain strength so that the sin that is crouching at my door doesn't come and master me. And there was something that just clicked with me that making room for God, retreating into that cold amount of car with God, pulling back, resting, is God's way of giving me his strength. So when I confront all the temptations that are over here in the enemy storyline, I have plenty of reserve to say no. Rest is a weapon. I have a friend, I, um, well, I'll talk about him a little bit this afternoon, but I have a 16-year-old son that we adopted four years ago plenty of material in that relationship. And uh, one afternoon, we were having a hard time about Xbox, he and I. And it started out to be about Xbox. And like seconds later, it was about the rest of his life, you know. And I was escalating right along with him. I was not rested. And the sin that was crouching at my door was having me and unfortunately, it wasn't just me it was having. When I succumb to sin, it impacts everyone around me, right? So my sin is now suddenly thrown into his face. And I knew I needed a, 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 a moment. So I called my little lifeline, a friend of mine who has a similar life experience. And I was like, and she does training with our organization. So I'm like, pull out your best slide and give it to me right now. Like, I need magic bullet. Give me magic bullet. And instead of her giving me like a best practice or this is what you should do, she literally said, sit down, take a beat, close your eyes, breathe. Like she understood rest is one of our weapons. That, that, and what we do in that rest, there's a difference between escaping and retreating. Retreating is about connecting and healing and then advancing. 
Escaping is about disconnecting, and it actually leaves me thirstier, hungrier, more tired than I was in the first place. Even if what I've used to escape feels like, well, it's not that bad, right? It's just, it's just Instagram. It's just Netflix. It's just chocolate. It's just... After I had done that tree experience with Carolina, I had at that during that time frame, I had a radio show on XM, and I was it was New Year's Eve, and I was talking about New Year's resolutions, and I just was saying on air all the things everybody says, like I want to learn a new language, and I want to learn, I want to lose 10 pounds, and I want to you know read 17 books, and I want to like just classic, classic New Year's resolutions. But when I got off the air, I was like, no, I really do kind of want to lose 10 pounds. But I had been doing that tree with Carolina on a very regular basis, trying to identify why her attitude and actions were coming from a particular lie, and then thinking and praying through strategies to combat that specific lie. And I was like, gosh, all my, strategy, all my New Year's resolutions have to do with the top of the tree. They have to do with attitude and actions in my life I don't like. And I thought, wow. I had gained 10 pounds that year, and I was like, I wonder what that is about. And the Lord and I spent some time in that tree, and I got down there in that root system, and I realized that there was a lie that had grown into the garden of my heart, and here's what it sounded like. It sounded like, God has asked too much of me, and I don't like his systems of reward, so I'm going to reward myself in the form of a bowl of chocolate ice cream every night. And when the Lord and I focused on that whole thing, I realized, oh my gosh, losing 10 pounds is not going to be about running more and eating less. Losing 10 pounds is going to be about coming to Jesus in a series of retreats instead of escapes so he can give me that which my soul actually really wants. Rest is a weapon. But when you think about, what happens when we come to God is we, we, we get the thinking that we are so sure of ourselves on realigned with his plumb line. There's, there's this, back-to-back um, -back turned 20 years, like two years ago, and we had a big open house. Anybody in the region that had gone on a back-to-back -back trip came to this open house. And this woman came to the open house. I didn't know her. I didn't recognize her. And she came to me. She's like, do you remember me? I came one time to Monterey. And I was like, Oh, remind me. And she's like, well, I was 13 at the time. And I was like, well, you've changed. And um, she said, you taught on the passage of James 1.27 about taking care of widows and orphans in your distress. And she said, in my 13-year-old heart, I made a decision that I was going to give my life for the, for the cause of the orphan, for vulnerable children. And I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. You were 13? And she's like, yeah. Then she opens up her little trench coat, and she had this impossibly small baby hanging on her. And she said, um, but this, the, my husband and I today, we foster medically fragile children in our county. She's like, I just wanted you to know that all these years later, 15 years later, this is what um, God has done with the seeds that were planted in Monterey. So the rest of the night I was telling everybody, like, oh my gosh, this lady is my picture of the day. I can't even believe it. She's, she's f f fostering medically fragile infants, and God started that in her heart in Monterey when she was 13, and it was, like, very exciting. Then I saw her a year later, and the first thing I said to her is, how many babies have you had since I've seen you last? And she said, well, actually, we're still caring for the same one that you saw that day. In fact, we spent most of this year preparing for her adoption. I was like, oh, that's so exciting. She's like, well... 
Her birth mom began to turn her life around in the last few months, and the county's put in place a reunification plan, and now that baby's going to go home in a few weeks. And、uh, I said, how, how are you doing with that? Because that's a complicated story with complicated emotions. She said, Well, to be honest, in the beginning, I was like confused and lost and frustrated and hurt because I felt like God had called us into this adoption and called us into this little girl's life. And I was like, Okay, well, then this is what, like, this is the mission. And so when the, he took that mission away, I was like, I'm, I'm without a mission now. Like, this, it's, it's a failed mission. She's like, But then after I spent time in the Word, rest is a weapon. Okay, she didn't say that part, but when she spent time, she's like, I kept asking God, What was this about? What do you have for me? And He revealed to me that He loves that mama whose house she's going to go back to as much as He loves that little girl. And if I have His heart inside of me, then I too can love that mama in the same way I love that girl. She's like, I didn't feel it at first, but I just started to text her little things like, Hey, thinking about you today, or here's a picture of her doing something. And we began to forge a little bit of a relationship, enough so that she just asked if I would be the godmother of her daughter. So now they're going to be in my life the rest of my life, and I'm hoping to use it as an opportunity to tell her the truth. And I thought to my, the first thing I thought of was John 3 16. God so loves the world. He is such a so lover. He so loves the world that. 15 years ago, he planted a seed in the heart of a 13 year old girl so that today she would be compelled to act on his behalf to go into someone else's chaos and bring the good news. The word agape, well, we talk about love a lot in the Bible, right? And in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, there's three different kinds of love. One of those kinds of love is called agape love. Agape has this great big long definition in the Greek, but the part of that definition I like the best. Is that agape love is defined as some, is compelled to act. Agape love cannot stop itself, it is compelled to act. Jesus had agape love for us when it took him to a cross. God put his compelled to act, agape love, into the heart of an initially resistant foster mom. So that through her, God might give his good news to a woman who might not otherwise hear it. Like God. Loves the world. There's, there's all these things that stop us, right? That trip us up. Whether they're sins that are crouching at our door or questions we just never really fully had answered. We, we have these like things over here that keep pulling us to, into believing there's two ways of life and we can put our foot in each world whenever it is that we want to. That we, on any given day, we can decide the way that we want to live. There's this、um, passage in,、uh, in the middle of the plague stories with Moses. It's in Exodus chapter 8. I'll read it to you, but you're welcome to read along with me if you want to. It's in Exodus chapter 8. It's in the middle of my Let My People Go. I love all the plagues. In fact, right now, I'm, kind of, I, I'm not ready to totally teach it yet, but I'm kind of fascinated by the plague of darkness. Just look it up, make it a study prompt for yourself. In the plague of darkness, it's, so darkness, it says in the Bible, fell so heavy you could feel it. Darkness fell, that's the NIV. It fell so heavy you could feel it. So, have you ever been in a situation that felt so dark you could almost feel it? Like, just the presence of the enemy and his design was so thick you could feel it. That's what fell over the whole land. Darkness so thick you could feel it. And it said, but God's people had light wherever it is that they went. So, like, what did they look like? Like little human lightning bugs? Like, just wherever they went, they had this like little light. Like, 
That's the image I have for us today as we walk into the chaos. We are like human lightning bugs. Wherever we go, we bring light with us. We have a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven on earth. We have the Holy Spirit inside of this body. Everywhere we go, no matter how thick it feels, we take light with us. Okay, that's a little side note. Exodus chapter 8. So one of the plagues is called the plagues of the frog. And I just want you, before I get started on the plagues of the frog, for you to think about between you and Jesus, because you've shown up this morning and he's talking directly to you, what is it that stops you from living over here in the gospel storyline all the time? For waking up and being like, I can't wait to reconcile. I can't wait to be a part of a restoration. I can't wait to rescue, repair, redeem, revive. Like, I can't, like, I'm all in. Like, what are the things that drag you over here? What, What is it? Is it a person, a habit, a sin, something you haven't forgiven? Hosea, this is another little side prompt. Write it down so you can look, for, look at it for yourself. Hosea um, has this passage. All, the, all of the minor prophets are the same, all 12 of them. God's people are doing the right thing, then the wrong thing. Then they stop listening to God, trying to convict them, so he has to send an outside source. Then some of them respond to that voice, and he calls them up out as a remnant to rebuild, and some of them don't respond to that source, and they pay the consequences for their sin. In the book of Hosea, there's this passage in the seventh chapter that says, I long to redeem them, but they speak lies to me. They do not talk to me from their heart. They just wail at me from their bed. That's the NASB. Like sometimes we identify the things that are stopping us from living God's way, but we don't, we don't actually talk to God from our heart. We just kind of wail at him. Like we just make a big show of it, but we don't actually do the work to fix it. In fact, in chapters 10 and 12, he'll use this phrase that our hearts can have fallow ground. I don't know how much farmland you have here around Greenville, but fallow ground means land that's untilled, uncultivated, laid dormant. It's fallow. And as believers, especially church-going American suburban Christian women, we can have fallow ground in our heart, sin areas we don't want to deal with, memories we don't want to dig up, people we'd rather not forgive, you name it. And we create workarounds around our fallow ground. We just, so nobody knows about it, and we have a way to get around it. We function just fine. We still have this fallow ground. Chapter 12 of Hosea says, it's time to break up your fallow ground. Like, we're gonna, we want to break up your fallow ground. This passage in Exodus 8 is a fallow ground breaker. I want you to think about where your workarounds have been in your heart and mind, and that's what we're going to look at today. Okay, I say that like we're just getting started, just kidding. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord said, let my people go so that you may worship me, and if you refuse to let them, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile, it will teem with frogs. They're going to come up into your palace and they'll be in your bedroom and they'll be on your bed and in the houses of your officials and they'll be on your people and they'll be in your ovens and they'll be on your kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. So just take a minute to think about the house that you came from this morning. Think about your kitchen covered in frogs, your oven and your kneading trough covered in frogs, your people all covered in frogs, your bed all covered in frogs. Think about everything all covered in frogs. You wouldn't like it very much and neither did Pharaoh. And finally, tired of the frogs that were absolutely everywhere, he calls Moses back to the table and he says, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and says, I want you to pray to the Lord to take these frogs away from me and my people 
and I'll let your people go offer sacrifices to the Lord. He's like, I, I don't like them anymore. I don't want them anymore. I don't want them on my people and on my walls and my bed and my oven and my knee I don't want them anymore. And I think Moses, in a like literal stroke of genius, he says to Pharaoh, okay, I'm going to leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses and ovens and kneading, and, and kneading troughs and ovens and beds may be rid of the frogs except for those that have to stay in the Nile. And if you're the guy that hates the frogs and the guy that put them there says, when do you want them to leave? You would say to him, right now. But in chapter uh, 8 of Exodus, verse 10, Pharaoh replies, tomorrow. I want to sleep one more night with my frog. Which doesn't make any sense until you think about that thing that you have slept with for so long, you now have a workaround around it. And it's up on you and it's on your people, whether you want it to be or not, it's on your people. It's in your oven and it's in your kneading trough and it's in your bed. And the Lord is saying to us, I'm going to leave you the honor of setting the time to decide when is it that you'd like to be rid of this thing. I've already done everything that's needed. I have conquered sin and death. Whatever you want, whatever you need for it, I have done it. You decide, when would you like to get rid of this habit, this relationship, this bitterness, this unforgiveness, this fear of the future, this question? When do you want to get rid of it? So many of us look at the Lord and like, oh, can we just deal with that tomorrow? I'd rather just sleep one more night with the frog. It propelled me out of bed yesterday to get here. This idea that we could sit in a room and have a conversation with the Lord throughout the day today about how we could live unhindered, how we could live in freedom, how we could stop having ugly parodies of community, but instead have things like serenity for life, exuberance, affection for others, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, that that would be dominant in our lives and in our marriages and in our home life and among our friends and with our in-laws and our neighbors and in our church community. Like, could that be our way of life? That's what God's inviting us into. I'm going to finish this session with something, um, an exercise that some of you may have done or not done. It's an exercise that, as far as I can tell, goes back to the uh, fourth century. So anything that's been going on that long is going to have various iterations. So even if you have done um, a Lectio Divina before, you might do it a little, you might have done it a little differently than we're going to do it today. So pay attention to my instructions. Lectio Divina is Latin for the divine reading. Um, I'm going to give the Lord the last word today um, in our session this morning. I'm going to only read the same passage of Scripture several times, and I'm going to give you instructions before each of the times I read it for you to think about something different. And then I'm going to give us a chance to have some corporate prayer. And here's the purpose behind corporate prayer. Especially in a room, you're thinking, I can't pray loud enough for anybody else to hear me other than my table. And what's 1 Corinthians 3.16? Don't you know that all y'all make up the temple of the Holy Spirit? Like, it is important for us to say out what God has said to us in because that edifies the body. I didn't hear or see what God gave to you because I was busy hearing and seeing what God gave to me. But what God gave to you 
enhances or expands my view of God. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm going to ask you this morning to possibly do something that might feel uncomfortable to you by speaking up in a moment where you're like, I don't want to say this in front of anyone else and even the few people at my table. But I encourage you to do it. It, it is a blessing to the body. Okay, the first, first set of instructions are pretty easy. I'm going to read this passage. You don't need to do anything else. Just close your eyes. And it's, I'm going to read through this passage two times. You might feel to yourself like, I hope you feel like one word or one phrase of what I say, kind of, it's like the, it's like the volume got turned up when I said that word. Like you, you heard the whole passage, but that word kind of jumped out at you. Okay, so just listen for a word that's going to jump out at you. Here it comes. Close your eyes with me, please. The Lord says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The Lord says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One, your Savior. I'm going to open us up in prayer, and I'm, I'm going to encourage you to, uh, when I prompt you, to say the word back to the Lord that you heard him say to you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you meet us in Scripture, that the words that you wrote to the prophet Isaiah are just as real then as they are today. Lord, this is the word that we heard you impress upon our hearts. I'm going to read this same passage, and I want you to imagine that you have in your mind a blank canvas, just a blank framed canvas. And as I read these words, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to just draw a picture in your mind. Your picture may have rivers and fires in it, like I'm reading, or it may be a totally different picture. Just let the Lord speak to you through his word. The Lord says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The Lord said, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. 
I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Lord, the picture you painted in my mind was, I think about all my sons and their sports gear and how our last name is on the back of every shirt that they have. And I felt like when you said you are mine, like I was wearing a shirt with your name on the back of it, like I belong to your team. I'm, I identify with you. And I, I like that picture that no matter where I go, I wear that shirt and represent you. I'm going to open us up in prayer, and you all, you can say your, your picture. And some of you might interrupt each other, and I'll just give us a few minutes for people to speak out what their picture is. I so encourage you to share your picture. It will bless the people around you that hear it. Lord Jesus, thank you that you bring your word to life for us. You give us understanding and insight and meaning. Lord, we want to share back with you the pictures that you painted in our mind's eye. Now I want you to put yourself on Jesus' lap, whatever that looks like in your mind. Think, remember Exodus thirty-three eleven. He wants to be face-to-face with us. So put your face next to Jesus' face. Put his hands, as scarred as you imagine them, on your two cheeks and just let him hold his face next to Hold your face next to his face. Let him say these words directly to you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, You will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Just think of a word or a phrase that that makes you feel and just say it out loud to the Lord. How does that make you feel to have him say that to you? Okay, lastly, I just want you to put someone that you love on that lap, someone that you want to bring light to their darkness, that you want to enter into their chaos that you want for them to understand this truth the way that you do. Physically put them on Jesus' lap. Put his hands on their face. Stand there in agreement and partnership with the Lord. And let's read these verses to them. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jesus, we want to partner with you We love you. We trust you. We want you. You come. That's the way of life we want to live. 
And I pray these things in your holy and your precious and your anointed name, Jesus. Amen.